At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about deporting the immigrants called undesirables, now under Trump and 100 years ago, because it's the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids, where J. Edgar Hoover got his start. Adam Hochschild has that story. Also, Martin Scorsese's new film, The Irishman, opens on Netflix this week. It claims to tell the true story of the murder of Jimmy Hoffa, head of the Teamsters Union who disappeared in 1974. John Powers will be in to talk about that. But first, impeachment isn't the only thing on our political agenda. There's also the Democratic primary and the role played by a certain Democratic Socialist senator from Vermont in setting the agenda for progressives and the left. For that, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and host of the Next Left podcast, which just wrapped up a remarkable six months of interviews with the people who are transforming politics at every level in America, concluding this week with Bernie Sanders. We reached John Nichols today on the way to Madison. John, welcome back. It's a pleasure to be with you, brother. Well, impeachment was pretty much uh, everything last week, and, you know, rightly so. But in the Democratic debate last Wednesday night, Bernie said that although Trump is a pathological liar and the most corrupt president in modern history, quote, we cannot simply be consumed by Donald Trump because if we are, we're going to lose the election, close quote. What's the argument that he's making here? Well, it's a blunt statement, but an appropriate one. And, and I will note that he's not alone in saying it. I think you'll hear similar things from uh, Elizabeth Warren and, interestingly enough, Andrew Yang, who I would note really, really emphasizes this point. At the core of it is a simple concept, and that is that running against Trump is appropriate, and certainly mobilizing for a lot of folk. But even if you beat Trump, if you beat him just by being opposed to him, you lose an option that's really important. And that is to address not just Trump, but the politics that made Trump possible. Remember in 2016, a huge number of people didn't vote as is often the case in America. And another substantial portion, something like 7 million votes for other candidates. We're always uh, against the horse race here, but I'll just note in passing that for the first time in months, Bernie is back in second place in the average of recent polls. That's a significant improvement uh, for him. 
Uh, let's talk about uh, Michael Bloomberg's entry into the race. Do you think it has any effect on uh, Bernie's campaign? Yeah, it has an impact. It gives him something to run against. Not that he didn't have a lot to run okay. against anyway. But, yeah, I mean, if you're running against the billionaire class and a mega billionaire gets in the race, that's certainly something you can talk about, especially if you're a candidate who says you'd like to pretty much tax billionaires out of the business. In addition, uh, it does give Sanders, Warren, and a number of the other candidates an opportunity to highlight campaign finance issues because there really is something wrong with a system where somebody can sit things out until pretty much, you know, halfway through and then decide, oh, I guess I'm going to run and buy their way into the process. Uh, the person it really affects, I think, is Joe Biden because, I mean, think about this, John. What is it about a relatively moderate, business-friendly Democrat in his late 70s that demands another relatively moderate, business-friendly Democrat to get in the race. Well, a lot of our friends ask, what's the difference between Bernie and Elizabeth Warren? Of course, they do have a lot in common on the issues, but there is one really big difference. Bernie emphasizes that he wants to build a movement. He says you can't achieve any of the progressive goals without a massive movement putting pressure on Congress. And that's a big reason why he's been encouraging other people to run for office as progressives. Uh, let's listen to a clip from his interview with you on the Next Left podcast where you asked him about that. During 2016, I think there was not a speech that I gave which did not say to the young people, to the people who were there, to working people who were there, get involved in the political process run for office, whether it is school board, legislature, city council, uh, Congress, whatever it may be, that we have to break down this psychological barrier where people think, you know, I don't have a PhD in economics or in healthcare. I, I just don't know everything. And we got to break that down and make people understand that if you have a heart full of compassion, if you understand what's going on in the world, if you believe in justice, you can run, you should run, and you can win. So, John, tell us what Bernie's been doing to recruit and help other progressives win office. One of the fascinating things was that he weighed in in a big way in uh, November 2019 on the Seattle City Council races. And I think one of the things that drew him into that was the reality that Jeff Bezos and Amazon were really trying to tip the balance of the city council, putting a lot of money into independent expenditures with other uh, forces from the business community. So in that case, he went in to highlight an issue and in some senses to oppose one approach to politics. In another case, in San Francisco, he went in for Chesa Boudin, who was running, a, a, by any measure, a remarkable campaign for district attorney in San Francisco with the message that via the district attorney's office, you really can achieve uh, massive amounts of criminal justice reform. Polls show Bernie in second or third place among the group that pollsters call likely voters. But as you've suggested, Bernie's whole strategy is to get people to vote who have not been likely voters in the past. Uh, let's listen. The only way we beat Trump is when we have a record-breaking voter turnout, 
when young people get involved in a way that we have never seen, when working people get involved in a way we have never seen. And the only way that happens is when you have a campaign of energy and excitement based on the issues that will resonate with working class people all over this country. That's why we're going to win, I think. John Nichols, let's talk about what Bernie's campaign is doing to try to bring in more people as voters who have not been voters in the past. Oh, there's a a lot that's going on with that. He's been putting a lot less emphasis on the, you know, the big events where all the candidates show up and try to win a sign war, right? That, you know, all the candidates have their supporters there and they wave a lot of signs and they, they try to create, you know, an impression of momentum and enthusiasm basically for the national media. They do that a lot in Iowa, somewhat in New Hampshire. And his campaign is putting less emphasis on that and doing a really interesting thing. On the days of these big events, rather than, you know, showing up with, you know, a crowd standing outside with signs greeting everybody that's driving up or something like that, his supporters go out and work the town where the event is being held. Uh, literature drop or door-to-door effort. They're also doing, uh, especially in some of these early states, a tremendous amount of door-to-door work uh, with identification of potential can- uh, potential voters as well as mobilization. And they're doing it in places in, in very low-income neighborhoods uh, and with working-class folks who, you know, aren't always the folks who show up for caucuses. And obviously the concept is to, you know, overshoot your poll numbers, to, to do better than that. And um, so that's one of the reasons why they haven't been as concerned if he's polling second someplace or, you know, if he's down a little bit in the polls. Uh, although it is notable, as you, I think you mentioned, in recent weeks, um, he has had something of a surge in the polls. And, of course, in your interview for the Next Left podcast, you asked Bernie about his heart attack. His answer was pretty remarkable. So Bernie Sanders finds himself in the hospital. Bernie Sanders has to take off a few weeks from the campaign in order to recuperate. And people all around the country were saying, you know what? It's not just Bernie. It's the need to guarantee health care to all people, to raise wages in this country, to deal with climate change, to deal with education, criminal justice, immigration reform. It's not just Bernie. And Bernie has his role, but we have our role as well. I think we have sensed that. That all over this country, people are saying, you know what? We've got to stand up maybe a little bit taller than we did before. It can't all be Bernie. It can't all be Bernie, he says. How has that worked out in practice? Look, I don't think there's any doubt that Bernie Sanders' campaign is you know, very much about the appeal of the guy. So the question is, what is that appeal? Is it him? I mean, do people just like him as a person? And, and there's some evidence that a lot of people do. Or is it a a set of issues? And to the extent that it's a set of issues, that's the thing that makes it about more than him. And one of the things that that does suggest to me, to a far greater extent this time than in 2016, is uh, that it is perhaps about more than just Bernie Sanders, is the significance of surrogates, of people who are going out and campaigning on Sanders' behalf at places that he doesn't get to or can't get to or uh, hasn't gotten to yet. And that was especially emphasized at the time of his heart attack and his recovery there, because you saw people like Ro Khanna, the congressman from California, 
Nina Turner, the longtime uh, elected figure in Ohio, uh, and a handful of other folks. Uh, and they often got very large crowds. Well, looking ahead to the uh, next couple of months, uh, looks like Trump's trial in the Senate on impeachment charges will be held in January. The pundits are saying this will have a big effect on Iowa and maybe New Hampshire because it will prevent Bernie and the other senators who are running for the nomination from campaigning while the trial is going in the Senate. The Iowa caucuses meet on February 3rd, which will probably be right after the vote in the Senate. If the if Bernie and the other senators can't campaign in Iowa, Mayor Pete, not being a senator, he will benefit. He's already in first place, according to the polls in Iowa. How concerned is Bernie's campaign about this? How concerned are the other senators who are candidates? Well, I mean, it, it, you mentioned Mayor Pete, who who is doing very well. I would also note that another guy um, who uh, could campaign in those states is Joe Biden. And uh, <laughs> Good point. Yeah, I mean, we, we shouldn't write him out altogether here because he still polls first nationally and usually yeah. in the higher levels in, in some of the, the early states, especially South Carolina, I'd, I'd point out. And But with that said, uh, yeah, it's, it's kind of a big deal. You know how uh, people sometimes, sometimes view jury duty as a bit of a burden? Well, imagine this, that, that you could have a situation where Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Kamala Harris and, you know, a couple other folks there, Michael Bennett, are on jury duty. <laughs> and, you know, far be it for me to be cynical about Mitch McConnell, okay? Because uh, that's not my, that's not where I come from. But right. if I was cynical about Mitch McConnell, I might imagine that he might kind of enjoy messing with this a little bit because, you know, the Democrats have thrown impeachment in his lap. And I guess I wouldn't put it past Mitch McConnell to say, okay, you guys want to do this. We're going to do this the long way. And that could really be inconvenient for, I I think, especially Warren and Sanders. John Nichols, you can listen to his interview with Bernie on the Next Left podcast at thenation.com, at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. It's a really good one. John, Thanks for talking with us today. It's a total pleasure to be with you as always, John. There's an unhappy anniversary coming up, the 100th anniversary of the Palmer Raids. That was the roundup and arrest of 10,000 people, followed by mass deportations of immigrants, people the government deemed undesirable in 1919. It's the sort of thing Trump would love to do if he could. For that history, we turn to Adam Hochschild. He's an award-winning writer on social justice. His many books include Bury the Chains, about the first movement to mobilize people against slavery, succeeded at abolishing the slave trade in England in 1807. And I also love his book To End All Wars. It's about the anti-war movements of the World War I era. Adam teaches journalism at Berkeley, and he's also a contributor to The New Yorker. Adam Hochschild, welcome back. Good to be with you again, John. Well, return with us now to Ellis Island in New York Harbor in December 1919. What happened there? It was kind of an amazing scene because this country 
exactly 100 years ago, was in the grip of a mania for deportation, a frenzy about deporting people. In this case, it was also ethnic in that the people who were being deported were mainly Italians and Jews, but it was also political. 1919 was two years after the Bolsheviks had taken over in Russia. There was a tremendous red scare going on in the United States, and the powers that be felt that uh, not only was uh, communism extremely dangerous and there was a risk that the, you know, the Russian Revolution could spread to the United States, but the people who seemed most in the thick of it and most propagating these doctrines were likely to be Jewish. Similarly, they were very worried about anarchism because anarchists had, in fact, planted some bombs, blown up part of the house of the Attorney General of the United States in, in the middle of 1919. The anarchists were largely Italians. So the deportation frenzy you know, that today is focused mainly on people from Latin America, at that time was focused largely against uh, Italians and Jews, and especially those who the government considered communists or anarchists. There was this remarkable scene at Ellis Island that happened just before Christmas, 1919. There were roughly 250 prisoners on the island, this place that had been, you know, the gateway of hope for millions of in immigrants coming to the United States. You know, your ancestors and mine and millions of other people's ancestors was now an immigration prison where people were being held before they were to be deported. And the chief orchestrator of this uh, deportation was a 24-year-old guy who was a relatively junior position at the Justice Department named J. Edgar Hoover, who uh -huh. later would go on to position of enormous power as head of the FBI. This was the first batch of what they hoped would be thousands and thousands of radical immigrants who would be deported. The one big difference between that campaign and what Trump has been doing, I learned from your article in The New Yorker, is that uh, in 1919, the proposals being made were not just to send back immigrants who were deemed undesirable. There was other people who were citizens who were considered undesirable by some people in the country and some people in the government. The radicals, the leftists, the anarchists that you've mentioned, tell us about the argument about deporting them. Well, you know, people were in such a frenzy about the radicals and in such fear that the Russian Revolution might spread to the United States that they came up with ideas such as, where could you deport people? Well, you could deport them to Guam. You know, if somebody was native-born native American... Uh, you know, there wasn't some place in Europe that you could send him or her back to, but we had taken Guam from Spain in the Spanish-American War, and that seemed a very distant place, safely distant. And there was a senator, actually, who talked about uh, uh, sending, people to, sending people to Guam. And there, was also, there were also calls, as there have been today, for doing away with birthright citizenship, which has been something that we've long had in this country, where somebody who's born here automatically becomes an American citizen. But this issue was raised in 
racial terms. You know that maybe that should just be be restricted to white Americans. They would have that right, but Asians, who they were also very worried about, would not. So these were some of the ideas that were floating around in the air, and that one dramatic expression of them was what happened at Ellis Island on that day. Paint the scene for us at Ellis Island in December 1919. Ellis Island has been turned into an immigration prison. Uh, The 249 people there, uh, among whom the most notable are the anarchist and feminist firebrand Emma Goldman and her longtime collaborator and sometime lover, Alexander Berkman. Emma Goldman had actually been naturalized as an American citizen by virtue of marrying somebody at one point many years earlier who was an American. But then he lost his citizenship because he'd falsified something on his application. So therefore, her citizenship was uh, legally declared uh, non-existent as well. So that gave the government the opportunity to, to deport this wonderfully colorful troublemaker who'd been in this country for 34 years, most of her life, found her political voice here, found a huge audience here, an audience that carried to other countries as well. But here she was on Ellis Island in the middle of the night with 248 other people. And this deportation, this mass deportation was considered so important by the government that J. Edgar Hoover led a delegation including the head of the Bureau of Investigation, a predecessor of the FBI, and several members of Congress to Ellis Island in the middle of the night so that they could see these prisoners being loaded onto a barge pushed by a tugboat that was going to take them from Ellis Island to uh, Brooklyn, where the ship on which they were to be deported was docked. So there were 10,000 people were arrested in the Palmer raids. More than 6,000 deportation cases were uh, prepared by J. Edgar Hoover's forces, but only a few hundred people were ever deported. Why was the number so low? What happened? Well, there was a remarkable and uh, sadly very unknown uh, hero involved. Here's what happened. The the Palmer Raids, as they're known, happened in uh, several waves, the two biggest of which were on November 7th, 1919, this pointedly the, the second anniversary of the, the Bolshevik seizure of power in Russia, and then again uh, in early January of 1920. And these raids netted netted an estimated total of 10,000 people. The government was deliberately targeting radicals whom they believed not to be U.S. citizens and who could therefore be deported. And so they prepared deportation warrants and cases uh, against the, the great majority of these folks. But there was a curious legal wrinkle, which was that although it was the Justice Department that had the power to mobilize its squads of agents to go out and arrest large numbers of people and often uh, rough them up quite badly in the process. Uh, Deportations fell under the authority of the Immigration Bureau, which was part of the Department of Labor. 
at this time, uh, and we're now talking early 1920, the Secretary of Labor was on sick leave. Uh, the second-in-command of the Labor Department, who would normally take over in his absence, resigned suddenly to uh, run for Congress. And that meant the third-ranking person in the Labor Department, the Assistant Secretary of Labor, was now acting Secretary of Labor with the authority over deportations. And this was a guy then 70 years old named Louis F. Post, and he was a very good guy, a longtime progressive journalist uh, who was one of many sort of progressive idealists who had joined the Wilson administration when Woodrow Wilson had first been elected uh, president in 1912. And Post was outraged at the prospect of these uh, mass deportations. He was somebody who was a staunch anti-racist uh, from his early days. He'd actually uh, worked as a, uh, a court reporter uh, right after the Civil War during Reconstruction in South Carolina and had been appalled at the racism he'd seen there and at the way uh, President Ulysses F. Grant had pardoned Ku Klux Klan members who'd been convicted of uh, murdering black people. And Palmer had known many of the prominent American radicals and progressives. Emma Goldman had once had dinner in his home, and he did everything he could to stop these deportations. And he'd also, before becoming a journalist, he'd worked as a lawyer, so he knew the ins and outs of the law, and he invalidated arrest warrants, he reduced or eliminated bail, uh, and he basically stopped J. Edgar Hoover and his boss, the Attorney General, um, uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, from deporting all but about 5 or 10% of the people that they'd hoped to deport. They were furious at him, and Post became one of the first, although by no means the last, uh, victim of an attempted smear campaign by J. Edgar Hoover. But Hoover failed. Hoover tried to get him impeached by Congress. That didn't work. He mobilized the American Legion to try to get Post fired. Uh, that didn't work. And uh, Post remained in office uh, uh, until the end of the Wilson administration. So let's connect this history with our current situation. It sounds like once again, there's some similarities here. This man, Louis F. Post, is someone who Trump would call part of the deep state. Is that right? Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And just as today, we've had some deep state people like those State Department diplomats uh, speaking up quite boldly in the impeachment hearings. Uh, at the time, uh, Louis F. Post was somebody who was, you know, an, uh, a previously unnoticed government bureaucrat, but who took the law very seriously and didn't want to see it abused and didn't want to see these mass deportations happening uh, for no other reason than combination of political and racial prejudice. And I think Louis F. Post can be an example to people today. Uh, when it comes uh, time to testify before the impeachment inquiry, and wherever that leads, people in government like him should speak out and speak out loudly.
Adam Hochschild wrote a terrific piece about the world of the Palmer Raids in The New Yorker. Thank you, Adam. Great to have you on the show. Okay. Well, thank you, John. Martin Scorsese's film The Irishman opens on Netflix this week. It reunites Scorsese with Robert De Niro and Joe Pesci from his 1990 film Goodfellas and adds Al Pacino. Got rave reviews from all the critics. For comment, we turn to John Powers. He's critic at large on Fresh Air with Terry Gross, where he's heard by something like 3 million people on every NPR station in America. He's also been film critic for Vogue and before that, the LA Weekly. He's written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and The Nation. His books include Sore Winners, about George Bush's America, and WKW, about Hong Kong director Wong Kar Wai. Last time he was here, we talked about John Le Carre. John Powers, welcome back. Happy to be here. Well, Donald Trump lists Scorsese's film Goodfellas as one of his favorite movies. It's not hard to see why there's so much gleeful mayhem in it. Do you think he'll put The Irishman on his list of favorites? No, he will not put The Irishman on his list of favorites. It's almost antithetical in a way to Goodfellas. It starts in a way as a parody of Goodfellas. You know, Goodfellas famously opens back with the flashy camera move going into a nightclub where everybody's having a great time. This one starts with essentially that same moving camera into an old folks' home with people in their chairs and you see the drips and all of that. (laughs) So it's it's a very different feel from the beginning. And essentially, I think it's fair to say, The Irishman is something of a critique of some of Scorsese's earlier gangster movies. The Irishman is sort of the story of what happens to the guys in Goodfellas when they get old and end up in that nursing home in the first scene with their their memories and their regrets. De Niro plays Frank Sheeran, a truck driver and professional hitman. His boss is Joe Pesci's Russell Buffalino, who runs the mob in Philadelphia. Joe Pesci notably plays it quiet and intense instead of uh, over the top. What's interesting about, about, about The Irishman is that it's not fun in the way of something like Goodfellas. De Niro in the nursing home is full of regrets, but these regrets are not about the, his crimes. They're not about the people he's killed. What he regrets is his failures as a father to his daughters, and the girls are the moral voice of the film. What do you make of this? Part of his regret is that he's not able to feel anything, except by the end what he feels is regret that his daughter doesn't love him, which brings you back to the, you know, the classic old gangster thing of family so that you care about your family. So it's, it's kind of bad that you shot the head off all these people, but essentially they weren't family. But your daughter knew it, and she doesn't love you. And now that's something you can regret. When he's with the priest, he can't really feel bad enough with the priest. He's, he, 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 what he wants is he wants his daughter to love him. He doesn't want God to forgive him. So the daughter, as a child, is the silent witness who condemns him uh, with her eyes, But I have to say, she's a very minor character. Well, the thing is, Scorsese's never really been very interested in women. He's not himself a wise guy, but he grew up worshiping those guys, you know, as the asthmatic kid in Little Italy. Those were like like the star athletes for him. Like, these are the people you want to be. And they've always seemed kind of magical to him. And the people around him and like the wives and stuff have never particularly interested him. 
And that's true with the daughters. The daughter has, she has a functional role, but she's barely in the movie. And when she's in the movie, she's in the movie as a witness and as a condemner rather than as a three-dimensional character with a life of their own. You know, by comparison, as you say, The Sopranos, it's completely different. The daughter is much more vivid and present. She almost feels tacked on to help people get the moral point of the film. He's more interested in the business of, the, of gangsterism. And in this particular film, I think it's about different kinds of gangsterism so that the Joe Pesci character is corporate gangsterism. And Jimmy Hoffa, who the film shows our hero killing, is not corporate gangsterism. He's slightly more freewheeling, anarchic, almost artistic gangsterism (laughs) and linked to a larger movement, which he, I think, believes in as well as exploiting. So the movie claims to tell the true story of the murder of Jimmy Hoffa. He was the powerful and corrupt leader of the Teamsters Union in the 50s who disappeared in 1975. The movie also claims to tell the truth about various other gangland killings, and there was a real Frank Sheeran who really did claim in a a deathbed told-to book to have killed Jimmy Hoffa. But in real life, lots of good investigative journalists have looked into the exciting story of what happened to to Jimmy Hoffa and nobody thinks Frank Sheeran killed Jimmy Hoffa it's it's a ridiculous idea there's a devastating expose for people who are interested at slate.com by Bill Tonelli but here's the question does that fact affect our judgment of the movie and if so how i part of the attractiveness of the movie is the way it claims to be connected to real life and shows us lots of real things happening, which include the Bay of Pigs and Kennedy, and there's even Watergate in there. Uh, what do you make of the, the, the claims that this is the true story? Well, I think what's interesting about the claims it's the true story is how quickly they back off. You know, when reporters ask them, they think, well, it's essentially the true story, or it could be the true story. They actually aren't really holding fast to the idea that Frank Sheeran for example, kill Jimmy Hoffa. But when you are presenting something as a true story and then expanding that out so that it's the mafia that killed JFK, you know, and and just taking that as just a received fact as part of the film, it doesn't make the film less entertaining. I, I don't know what you do because almost every film contains some historical lie. The, the Crown, which is this hugely pop, popular Netflix thing, which, you know, which... Even my leftist friends love passionately. They all watch The Crown. Everybody watches The Crown. They're making stuff up all the time. Probably more interesting and complicated because Frank Sheeran, who officially kills Jimmy Hoffa in the movie, I have a reporter friend named Dan Moldea who has a photocopy on his website of Frank Sheeran's lawyer threatening to sue Dan Moldea because Moldea had claimed that Sheeran was in Detroit on the day that Hoffa was killed. (laughs) But then he sold his book and suddenly he's turned himself into the murderer of Jimmy Hoffa, even though he's prepared to sue to claim he wasn't there before. It's a tricky thing because at some point, art fills people's heads with lies as well. We used to make fun of Reagan for actually believing things had happened because he'd seen it in a movie. Whereas now, movies are doing this all the time and more and more people are believing it, which at a time when people don't think that objective truth exists in any way, that may be a bad thing. And then there's the last 30 minutes of The Irishman, 
our protagonists are old and sick and sad and pathetic, the reviewer for The Guardian wrote, we are suddenly made aware of the ultimate price of this lifestyle and of the crushing savagery of old age. It's a finale of stifling bleakness, of the pathetic emptiness of crime and of men who mistake their priorities in life, the discovery arriving all too late. And there's almost a meta-maturity for Scorsese, as if he is looking back on his own career, the film leaving us with a haunting reminder not to glamorize violent men and the wreckage they leave behind, close quote, The Guardian. Do you think that's right? Well, we have to unpack some of that. It's not the worst possible life. The old folks' home is a pretty nice one. You know, you, you know I, mean, I mean, in terms of the wages of crime. So, so start there. It is probably Scorsese offering some sort of self-critique, but not in quite the powerful terms that the people, I think, want it to be. If nothing else, he who reads his press clippings knows that for 45 years, people have been saying he's too into these guys. <laughs> he's been pretty into all sorts of violent stuff pretty recently. So unless, unless this is like some sort of final film, this is his final statement where he's feeling bad about it, I'm not completely convinced that he's had a huge change of heart. I didn't find the, the ending as devastating you know, but maybe because I, I'm able to die bitter and alone all by myself. You know, I, I actually don't need to go to a movie to have to learn that about about reality. But leaving that aside, is that I, I just felt the last half hour kind of belabored points rather rather than made you feel them more deeply. It was another one of the millions of Hollywood movies that doesn't know how to end. I kept thinking, oh, it's over, and then there was another scene that I thought essentially made the same point. We haven't said much yet about Jimmy Hoffa, who's, of course, a major figure in American history and a pretty important figure in this film. Al Pacino plays Jimmy Hoffa as a passionate, almost performance artist version of a union leader for whom everything is personal. And I think, I think the reason why Hoffa matters in the film is not simply that he's running this huge, incredibly powerful union and that he was mobbed up and even more mobbed up in reality than, than the film seems to suggest. But in the logic of the film, the hero Frank Sheeran is torn between two people he loves. He loves the Joe Pesci figure, who's the corporate mafia guy. And then he loves Jimmy Hoffa, who's the dirty union guy, but who, for whom everything is personal. Pesci's the guy, which is, I'm sorry to do this to you, but it's just business. It's not personal. And for Hoffa, the Teamsters are his. He created them. He's the king of it. It's like his work of art. And I think in the logic of the film, on the one hand, you have the corporate guy played by Pesci, who even wears the big glasses that someone like Lou Wasserman used to wear in Hollywood. And then you have the more artistic, slightly thuggish, but he has his own vision guy, which is Hoffa. And in fact, Frank, played by De Niro, is torn between those two guys in the same way that Scorsese in his life has always been torn between the fact that he, he has to work with corporate movie people. He wants to make a lot of money. His nut is huge. He needs a big payday. He wants his movies out there and they have to be big. You know, Martin Scorsese does not make tiny little movies. He's talked about going back to make those tiny little movies and he never goes back to make those tiny little movies. But he's also very much drawn to the artistic, personal guy, difficult flamboyant, who has his own vision of things. And I think so, the, like almost every film, if you look at it, can be a film about the filmmaker's sense of their own filmmaking. And in this case, you see that same tension between like the corporate, soulless, all business, and the person for whom everything is personal and I've created it and it's mine. 
Martin Scorsese's film, The Irishman, opens this week on Netflix. John Powers, thanks for coming in today. Always happy to be here. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.